Well, good morning, Oakwood family. So glad that you're here with us this morning, or if you're watching online this morning, glad that you are uh, tuned in with us this morning all across the Fruited Plain. And it's snowing, which is awesome for this guy from Iowa originally. I, I, it has been a long time coming, okay? It, and if you want to know, not that I'm keeping track or anything, it's been nine years since we've had measurable snow in Enid. So I'm, of course, very excited. Uh, my girls are excited because I've been promising them we would go play in the snow for nine years, okay? And now they're like 19, 15, and 13, so I don't know how they're all going to fit in the thing. But yeah, we'll, we'll get to that maybe later today. But no, it's, it's exciting. It's a great reminder to me. Every time it snows like this, it's always a reminder to me of just the grace of God that says that the blood of Jesus washes us white as snow. And as you look out over the, 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 the earth today and you see all that whiteness, just think of the grace of Jesus Christ and uh, just what a what, really what a beautiful thing it is. It's a different scene out there, and uh, and this is a good wet packing snow. So guys, pelt your wife with one. You know it's been nine years, right? So as she's going in the house after church today, just go ahead and do what you really want to do. You know. Give in to that temptation. It's the only time I'll tell you that. So, uh, no, uh, we've been in a series for several weeks called A Thrill of Hope and uh, in, 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 uh, taking that line from the song, Oh Holy Night. And that uh, first week we talked about how the weary world rejoices. And last week we talked about how that, that line about a soul felt its worth. And how that really, those are great um, lines of, of doctrine and theology and understanding of who God is and what he's done for us um, in those lines from the song. And uh, we're going to continue in that today, and we're going to get to the climax of the song when you get to that course where it says, fall on your knees. Uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. So if you have your Bible this morning, Matthew chapter 2, please. Matthew chapter 2, and if you didn't bring your Bible, or, or maybe you choose to follow along on your phone, or, or on your uh, iPad, or your tablet, you can just download the Oakwood app, and then in there are all the sermon notes, all the scriptures, all the bullet points, and even a place for you to take notes for yourself and save them, uh, you can do it right there in the app, but Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Now, I grew up in the church, and growing up in the church in Christmas season as a child always had great memories for me, and I'm just curious, um, first service this morning was, was just amazing on this question of how many people had done this, and I was actually very surprised by it, but I'm, I'm just curious because if you're unchurched, you may be like, what are you talking about, except you've probably seen one of these programs, but if you were one of those kids that grew up in the church, then you may have been a part of one, but I'm just wondering by a show of hands this morning, how many of you have ever been a part of a children's Christmas program? Children's Christmas program. Raise it high. All right. Wow. A lot of you. Okay. And, and, and that is awesome to me because uh, first service was the same way. And it's amazing because it's a cross-generational thing. I mean, you could have, you know, a 16-year-old in the room. Oh, yeah, I've been a part of it. And you got somebody who's, you know, 80 in the room. And they're like, yeah, I was part of a children's Christmas program. And weren't those great times? One of those great times and such such great memories uh, of growing up in the church. I remember that we had do a, a children's Christmas program every year, and they always bought a theme. You know, had a theme, and they buy these books, and you'd have acting parts, and, and and you know, and that was led by a mom that liked you know to do acting and was maybe really dramatic or something. And then you had a. And one of the moms would lead the choir, you know, the children's choir, and would teach you all the music, and, and you kind of you kind of get the theme here, right? You know, and so if there's another special part, like building the prop sets, there'd be another mom, right? They would, do, they would be doing that, and this mom's over props, this one's over acting, and this one's over this, and then you had the, the whole program director, which again was someone you knew, someone else's 
mom did that, you know, and so the moms were involved, and it was, it was really, really great, and, and, and wasn't it fun, because you would get to do a different part, you know, there was always like, in our programs, there's always like singing parts, and every once in a while, there'd be a solo, you know, and, and you might get the solo part if you could actually, you know, carry a tune in a bucket, mostly, most of the time, um, and, and so it was fun to be a part of choirs, fun to be a part of maybe one of the solos, or maybe you got a speaking part, you know, but you got to be a character. There's so many characters in the Christmas story. I mean, you remember this, right? I mean, the, in ours, there was always, you know, the, the kid that got to wear the star costume. You know, we'd either suspend them from the ceiling. No, we didn't do that. I always wanted to be, because then everybody would want to be the star to fly. But no, you know, they'd be over there, you know, on the ledge of the baptistry, you know, dressed in the star outfit. And then you had, you know, then it would kind of go into the, the uh, I call them sundry bar- barnyard animals, you know, the manger animals. You had some people that would be sheep and goats and maybe a couple donkeys, a couple mules, you know. And, and then, you know, kids would wear these costumes and maybe make them and put them on. And, and that, that was the cool thing about a Christmas program is it always led to the nativity, Right. And it should. I mean, that's the whole Christmas story. So it didn't matter what fun songs or what entertainment value the Christmas program had. Every Christmas program had this scene with the nativity. And you kind of wanted to be a part of that. And you could have been the star. You could have been one of the animals. And and then you got into some other characters like the shepherds, you know. And the shepherds was always like 12 little boys with rods in their hands. I don't know what mom thought that was a great idea, but... Moms are always like, you know, don't hit each other. It's like you just gave them rods. <laughs> you gave them the shepherd staff. They're going to hit each other, you know. And, and, and they're, yeah, they're, they're messing with each other. But then you had the shepherds. And then, and then you get into those, those main roles, you know. You see, maybe one year you got to be Joseph, you know. Or maybe you got to be Mary. Uh, you know, you always had the baby Jesus, the, you know plastic doll baby Jesus and you know but then but then there was those other parts that were cool too like the angels remember the angels it was always the girls that got to be the angels because the boys never wanted to be the angels they wanted to be the shepherds you know and and so and, and they always had to have blonde hair and blue eyes I never got that you know you had to be blonde hair and blue eye to be an angel and you know they put those little halos over their head and I you know I never understood that exactly but you know it, it, and it's fun at all these traditions but the most coveted part and it's going to be where we're at in, in, in our story today in Matthew chapter 2, was, was the wise men or the magi. Now, now, you know why that was the most coveted part, especially for the boys, right? We three kings of Orion army, you know, you know, you know, the, you know the story. And it, it was cool about uh, being one of the wise men was there's always three of them, right? And, and we're going to talk about that, uh, the, how that's not really scriptural, but there was always three, and so there's only three guys that got to do that part. But man, it was really cool. You, you got to put on like these outfits that were better than everyone else's outfit. You know, they were ornate, and, and you got to wear a crown, you know, because we three kings, and you know, got to wear a crown. And, and then you got to give gifts, you know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You, you'd bring these gifts to Jesus, and you kind of had your own big entrance at the end. You know, because they're at the end of the Christmas story. You know, there's the, the knight and the shepherds and, and the angels, and then everyone's coming, but it's always the wise men. And what was really cool about being a wise man is not only were you like the big show at the end, is you had your own entrance music sometimes. Do you remember this? It was a song, and the choir would sing, and you, you guys know the song. Listen to the lyrics. Give, give this a listen here.
I mean, how cool is that? You got your own entrance music, you know, you're going to walk around all, you know, kingly looking. And I mean, it, it was just a cool part. And if you think about it as part of the Christmas story, this is also one of the most mysterious parts, right? If there's any mystique around the Christmas story, it was the wise men, right? The magi. We read in scripture they're from out east somewhere. They followed a star. Uh, they come and, and, and they come to worship and they come bringing these gifts. And we're going to get deep into this story today, one of my favorite parts of the Christmas story, and see what God has for us. Because when we get to that song in you know, a holy night, there's that line that says, fall on your knees. And that's exactly what they did. When they came to worship Jesus. It's exactly what we should be doing when we come to worship Jesus. So let's read this passage together in in, uh, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 beginning with verse 1. And what I'm going to do as we're reading this through is I'm going to kind of pause here and there and just kind of explain some things as we we, uh, go through the passage this morning. Matthew chapter 2 beginning with verse 1. So after Jesus was born, so this was after, okay? They didn't come the night. They weren't there at the birth. This was after. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, okay? King Herod's still ruling in, in Jerusalem at this time. It then says that Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So several things to, to consider here. Um, who these magi were. Uh, it says they were from the east. Most Bible scholars believe they were from uh, someplace like Persia. Persia is actually modern day Iran or Iraq. And if you think about that territory. And you think about who settled there. Something that's interesting. If you know your, your Bible and, and way back to Genesis. And if you might remember the story of Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham and Hagar. His servant and Abraham and Sarah were not able to carry on the lineage and he kind of got impatient so he took his maidservant and and they had Ishmael but Ishmael wasn't God's chosen lineage and so uh, Ishmael though he was important and it said he would be a great nation he moved off to the east and a lot of uh, scholars believe that it was in the Persia area so it's interesting that the wise men who are from the east or from Persia may actually be uh, Ishmael's lineage there to worship Jesus the to worship Jesus as he's born king of the Jews. So it's kind of amazing how God can orchestrate these things, use these things and the meaning behind them when you study them. And, and then there in, in verse 2 it says, where's the one who is born king of the Jews? You know, you're sitting there wondering, well, how would they even know if they're from Persia? I mean, is like Persia paying attention? I mean, how'd they even know there was perhaps a king of the Jews? And then there's the whole thing with the star, right? We saw his star. Like we saw a special star in the sky, and when it rose, and we have come to worship him, this star, we've been following this star for quite some time, and we have come to worship him. Now look at verse 3. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Good place to, to ask the question, why? Why was Herod disturbed, and why was all of Jerusalem disturbed with him? Well, first of all, Herod was disturbed disturbed because he thought he was the king of the Jews. I mean, for all intentional purposes, he's like, I'm the king of the Jews. And so if some some people from out of town, out of state, out of country are coming into the city and they're saying, we're here to worship the king of the Jews, he's thinking, well, you're here to worship me. And they're like, ah, 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 we're following a star and and this is going to be a newborn king. And and, and so he, you know, he's very disturbed. But then it's interesting because it says that all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Now, let me tell you what my theory is on why Jerusalem was disturbed. 
you know, we have the story, right? It's the, the, the wise men, the magi, and, and, and we always, you know, usually celebrate with three. We even have songs, right, that we sang, We Three Kings of Orient Are. But there was probably not three wise men. And, and we actually will never read that in our passage today, never see it in the scripture. We know that there were three gifts, that they came with three gifts specifically, but we don't know that there were three wise men. In fact, I think there was probably 50, 100, or 500 magi coming from the east. And let me tell you why. Jerusalem was a major city. All kinds of traffic in and out of it. There would be nothing to see foreigners come. So if you saw three guys rolling in on camels, not a big deal. You know, three guys rolling on camels from out east somewhere, maybe Persia. Okay, you know, they're coming in. That's not going to disturb Jerusalem. That's not going to upset everything that's going on. And yet... It does. It says that Jerusalem and King Herod were all disturbed by this. And now, if you could picture 500 camels and 500 magi coming into town, this whole throng of them coming into town, okay, now that, that might be a little disturbing because they're like, you know, are they going to wage war on us? Why are they here? They say they're here for the king of the Jews. You know, what's going on? It raises all these questions. So let's pick it up here in verse 4. It says, when he had called together all the chiefs, this is, this is King Herod, he called together all the peoples, this is the Jewish people that live in Jerusalem, all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, that would be the, the Pharisees, he asked them, where the Messiah, who is also foreshadowed, the king of the Jews, where's the Messiah, where was the Messiah to be born? Because there was all kinds of prophecy about this, and so they knew, and they answered him right there in verse 5, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And then Herod called the Magi into a secret meeting. See all the mystique of this? I mean, called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that that star they were talking about had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, because he knows the prophecy. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report back to me so that I too may go and worship him. Even though, if we know the story, there's an ulterior motive there. Verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. It makes me wonder if the star had kind of gone away. It kind of, kind of had paused while they were in Jerusalem dealing with King Herod. And then King Herod and the prophecies found out from the people. And now they're heading to Bethlehem. And as they take out over Bethlehem, there's the star that they've been watching for months, maybe over a year. The star is there. And then it says, on coming, so when they saw the star, they were overjoyed with great joy. Verse 10, verse 11, on coming to the house, okay, so Jesus wasn't in the manger. This was sometime later. They had to travel all the way from, you know, out east somewhere. And it says that, that when they saw, when they were coming to the house, and when they saw the child, now, now not just called a baby, but a child, with his mother Mary, they bowed down and they worshiped him. Notice how they encounter the Son of God. How they encountered Jesus. They bowed down and worshipped him. What's interesting is if you're reading this in the Greek, that word worship means to take a bended knee, to pay homage to by making yourself low, by humbling yourself. And so you could almost read it like, and they bowed down and they bowed down to him. They bowed down and in humility, they worshipped him. They paid homage to him. They showed his greatness. And it says, and then... 
they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. These were treasures, gifts, very expensive, gifts of gold, of frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod through Jerusalem, they returned to their country by another route. Now notice they were warned in a dream. A lot of times when I read this part of the story, I'm like, well, how did they know there was a newborn king? And how did they know he was the king of the Jews? And how did they know? They could have been having other dreams before they even set out on their journey. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly. Uh, some people believe that maybe it's through the, some of the prophecies of Daniel. Because Daniel, uh, when the Jews were in exile, were, were over in that part of the world. And maybe some of those, those uh, prophecies were passed down. And that's how they knew there would be a newborn king of the Jews. But... No matter what it was, God was speaking and God was working. God was using even magi, even foreigners from another country that had nothing to really do with Judaism at the time. He uses them in a special way for a special purpose. And then they were warned in this dream, hey, don't go back to Herod, don't go through Jerusalem. And they returned back to their homeland by a different route. Now, if you go on to the rest of the story, in case you don't know it this morning, if you read the next a section header perhaps in your Bible it says the escape to Egypt because what we understand there is what happened is that King Herod was very jealous he was a very insecure guy and uh, he thought he was the only king of the Jews and wanted to make sure of that and so when he realized that he had been duped by the uh, Magi the Magi actually left Bethlehem and went home by another route did not come back and report to him he ends up killing all the babies in and around Bethlehem that are two years old and under actually fulfills another prophecy But he ends up killing them, and so then it is at that time that Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus take off to Egypt, which fulfills another prophecy. Uh, Many people believe that the uh, precious gifts that were so expensive maybe funded that journey, and they had to stay in Egypt for quite some time before they returned to Nazareth, where he would be called a Nazarene. All of this is amazing because the Bible gives us this in the Old Testament and all of these prophecies, and you see them fulfilled, each one in all, its, all of its specifics in this story. It, it's such a great story. I think there's so much we can learn from it this morning. And, and so uh, let, let's begin this morning. Let's consider how we worship God and, and, and consider what we can learn from this story of the Magi. And the first thing is this. Everybody worships something or someone. Every single human worships something or someone. The only choice we have is what or who we worship. When God gave us the free will, we get to choose who or what we worship. But everyone is a worshiper. And if you're here today for the first time, or maybe you're online watching church for the first time, and you're wondering, you know, what does this mean exactly? You are a worshiper. Everyone that is born is wired for worship. The choice we get to make is who or what we worship. Because we're all worshipers. And one of the ways that we can know that and kind of frame this up is what is the center of our life? What is the main focus of our life? What are we concerned with the most? You know, some people, they worship money and possessions. And you would know this because that's the bottom line in their life is their bottom line. Is they're very, very concerned and they're, they're almost obsessed with material possessions or wealth. And, and you, you may know someone like that, that you're like, oh man, so-and-so, man, they really love their money. They probably do. 
You could probably make that statement, that they do love their money. They love their wealth. For some people, it might be something else. It might be like achievement, power, some kind of clout. Man, that person, they're really proud of themselves. They puff themselves out. They're always talking about themselves. You know, look at me, I did this, and I won a won a state championship in 1992, and then I took my Camaro on the, you know, out to Germany, and went, went on the Autobahn, and then I went over here, and you know, you know, and, and they brag, and you know, they're always talking about themselves, and what they're really worshiping is is some kind of power, accolade, some kind of recognition, maybe even a little bit of themselves. Some people actually might struggle; they might like worship their body, like the actual physical body. Like, you know, they work out all the time and everything's about everything in the mirror being perfect. And that's not a bad thing. But when it becomes the main thing in your life, the priority shifts. You might be worshiping at that altar, the altar of self. And, and, and there's many other things. There's, there's some people worship intellect. You know, it's like how smart a person is, how much they, you know, they desire to gain more knowledge, but it's so they can be smarter than everyone else. Um, there, there's, there's some people that do it through relationships. It's almost like they worship another human relationship. Some people, that's why they're always pursuing the next boyfriend or the next girlfriend. Or maybe even some, for some people, it's the next friendship. They just always have to have somebody there with them. And, and you know, that becomes the center. That becomes the object. That becomes their, their greatest pursuit in life and the main focus of their life but everybody worships we're we're just wired that way something is going to become central to your life and it doesn't matter if you're a church goer or a non-church goer if you're religious person a non-religious person irreligious person or a pan-religious person you are a worshiper and I would say if I could spend an hour with you and I could just talk to you, I might be able to figure out what you worship. Because you have this tendency to maybe talk about that more than anything else. Which leads us to the, to the next thing I think we can learn today. Everybody worships, we get to choose what or who that is. But the second thing is, the priority of our life reflects the object of our worship. The priority of our life reflects the object of our worship. And you may say, well, that's so simple. It is. I mean, what are you really into? And being into something else other than Jesus isn't bad. But what are you ate up with? What is the central thing? What is the thing that always pulls you? What is the thing you pursue most in life? What is the thing that grabs most of your mind's attention and your heart's affection? Because I think that's where our worship is. It's our mind's attention and our heart's affection to be toward Jesus, to be toward God Almighty. But for some people, maybe that, that mind's attention and that heart's affection is towards something else. And that is a problem. Because God says, I want to be the center. I don't mind you having a hobby. I don't mind you having an activity. I don't, I don't mind you enjoying life in this world. But I want to be the center. I want to be the most and the best and the highest, the lifted up. And you can so many times tell what someone is worshiping because you'll find out that they're talking about it the most. They're thinking about it the most. They spend all of their energy there. If you went to their bank account and you were to look at their checkbook register, all of their money goes there. That's the thing they spend the most on in their bank account. 
There's calendar. If you looked at their calendar, you'd see the time dedicated to the object of worship. It's the thing that they show priority to. If something's going to give, it's going to be on the side of that. I mean, I mean, if I'm, I'm not going to miss that. So I will sacrifice worship of God because I've got to be at what I really love. I will sometimes not do a spiritual activity or be in some kind of discipleship or be in some kind of study because my priority isn't that really. It's not my spiritual growth. It's not loving God. My, my focus is over here. And when you look at the priorities of your life and you say, this is what I'm ate up with, this is what I give most of my attention to, this is what I spend my money on, this is the thing I talk about, this is the thing, this is my thing. We want your thing to be Jesus. God wants your thing to be him. If you find that he never makes the conversation, then maybe I challenge you for you this morning is to examine why. Why or why not? More of God. Because the priority shows and reflects what we're worshiping. And we need to remember that the main thing in life is to keep the main thing the main thing. And we fight this our whole life, right? You're going to fight this. This is going to be a struggle, this, this, this distraction, this pulling away from God and pulling you to other things in this world. What you'll find as you go through life, and especially uh, some of you that are, that are maybe older, as you go through life, you'll find out that none of that satisfies like it satisfies for a moment or for a season, but whatever it is that I'm worshiping does not satisfy till I find Jesus. And when he becomes the center, when he becomes the most and the highest and the best in our life, then, then I find out I have true contentment with my life because you're loving and you're making priority what God intends. You're his creation. <laughs> he created you. He gave you the free will to choose. He made you in the likeness of his image. He gave you the intellect to think and to make decisions. He didn't create us to be little robots. And that's why when we choose to love him and we choose to give him the priority in our lives, that's really what he desires. And the last thing this morning is that we sacrifice for what we worship. We sacrifice for what we worship. Think of the Magi here. What kind of sacrifice did they made? sacrifice of time i mean to travel if you if you looked on a on a map and you looked at where where persia let's just say it is persia is where they're from if you look at that and you look at how with the distance that they traveled it was a long ways took a long time i mean why did herod want to kill the babies that were two years old and under in and around bethlehem it's because jesus was around two years old maybe 18 months to two years he was a toddler when they came because they had to travel. The star appeared in the sky and they, they began their journey and they traveled to the baby Jesus. It's significant to understand the sacrifice that they made. Leaving their families, leaving their friends. What about the financial sacrifice that they made? To go on this journey. When was the last time you made that trek? And you pursued God and nothing else for 18 to 24 months. And you sacrificed your job and, and, and everything. You left that behind to pursue. And that's exactly what they did. They, they made the sacrifice necessary. 
We sacrifice what we worship. It also was seen in the three gifts, the three gifts that they brought baby Jesus. And I have these kind of representations of that up here, of the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. And these are significant gifts because they were very, very expensive gifts. The first gift that the, uh, that the wise men, uh, that the magi bring to baby Jesus is the gift of gold. Uh, th- this is a piece of, of glass with water or oil in it. And it has, I don't know if you can tell from out there, it has flakes of real gold in it. And, and, and this reminded us of something. This pointed to something for Jesus. You, you, you know what gold was used for. I mean, it was used as a financial transaction back then. Very, very expensive. God used this in the tabernacle. God demanded use of this in the temple. This was a precious metal, the most precious metal, still a precious metal to many today, as it costs, I don't know, $1,600 an ounce. But gold, when you saw gold, and if you could afford gold, it was pointing to royalty. When they brought this to the baby Jesus, it, it, it was a sign to everybody that this is the king. In Matthew's gospel, it's interesting. Because if you read the whole book of Matthew, the whole gospel account, Matthew actually uh, talks about Jesus and uses the word king many times. Calls him the king of kings, the lord of lords. He's the king of the Jews. And even from, from the storied baby account of Jesus coming into the world, even to the end, you see Matthew pointing that Jesus is king. He has royalty, and that was represented in the gold. And then they brought him another gift. They brought him frankincense. Frankincense. It's amazing because I've had these for a few years. Still smells. It's like Dead Sea Tupperware. Still good, you know? And, and, and what happens here in, in the frankincense? Frankincense in this form is like tree resin. It was very, very expensive and, and, and quite rare, which made it even, you know, more costly. But in this, in this tree resin, this was something that they burned many times for sacrifices in the temple. Also, sacrifices in and around the tabernacle. And, and it's interesting because they would, they would do this, and many scholars believe that this pointed to Jesus' deity, it's just such a, it's such a unique scent frankincense is, and it's so rare and so precious, but that frankincense represented his deity. So we have the gold that represents his royalty. We have the frankincense, which points to his deity, the fact that he was the son of God, that he was part of the triune God and being the father and the son and of the Holy Spirit. Again, a very, a very precious gift, one that you would want to bring to honor someone. Uh, many times, uh, uh, incense, frankincense was, was burned in a wedding, if you, if you could afford it. They, they would do that as a, as a celebration and as a blessing of God on the marriage. And so this points to Jesus' deity. So we have the gold of royalty, the frankincense to his deity. And then we get to the last thing that they brought Jesus, and that was myrrh. Now, myrrh is the same. Let me see if this, oh yeah, Dead Sea Tupperware is really good stuff. It's also resin, just like frankincense. Not as rare as frankincense and so not as costly. But it's interesting, of all the spices, of all the things, of all the precious things they could have brought Jesus from a foreign land, why myrrh? Because Jesus had an encounter with myrrh. Do you remember? Do you remember when Nicodemus 
asked for Jesus' body off the cross, and they wrapped him, not in swaddling clothes, but in linen burial cloths with burial spices. Myrrh was often used as a burial spice. Again, expensive, not as near as expensive as gold or frankincense, but it's interesting. Why would you bring the newborn king of the Jews a burial spice? Well, if you knew the mission in which Jesus came into the world, then you understand. It's a foreshadowing. Many many believe that he was given myrrh because it pointed to his humanity. He was 100% God when he came into this world, but he was also 100% man. And so we have the gold that represents his royalty. We have the frankincense that represents his deity. And then we have the myrrh that represents his humanity. And is a foreshadowing the burial spice of the sacrifice that he is going to make for all of us. And they're all precious, and and as I said earlier, uh, some scholars believe this is what funded the trip to Egypt. This is what kept them going in Egypt were these gifts, and this is probably what funded their trip back to Nazareth when it was safe. When Herod had quit looking for the child and all of that had happened. And isn't it interesting how God orchestrates and makes things work in the story. There's so many specific things, specific prophecies from the Old Testament that are found out, that that are found to be just absolutely true, just as they were prophesied. When you get to the story in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, coming into the world. One thing that's interesting that I don't want you to miss today, and I didn't glance over it, I just kind of wanted to end with this thought. If you look at King Herod, you'd say, King Herod is a pagan. King, king Herod you know, may have been the king of the Jews by you know, some sort of political appointment and, and may have been the ruler over Jerusalem, but he was not a follower of God. If you know the story of King Herod, he actually had his sons killed. He had his sons killed because he felt threatened by them. He didn't want them to overthrow him or, or take over his position on the throne. I mean, who does that, right? You'd look at King Herod, you'd say, pagan. He's a pagan. He didn't follow the Lord. But what about Magi? from Persia that don't maybe worship God. Stargazers, some believe astronomers. People of the the court over there in in Babylonian country. You would probably look at them and you would point to them and you'd say, pagans. They don't worship God. And yet, God uses all of them in the Christmas story. It's as if King Herod, who, who being around the Jews and being in Jerusalem and, and having the descent that he had, you would think would be the one that would maybe embrace the Messiah. But no, he, he comes to Jesus with a closed fist and he wants to get rid of him. He wants to kill him. Because he's going to be the king of the Jews. He doesn't take a bended knee. He doesn't worship him. His response to Jesus is closed up. And then you have the pagans from out east that come all of this way that God was using to be a very, very special part of the story of His Son coming into the world. Through so many prophecies fulfilled, through so many elements in it. 
And, and you read the story and you say, how will they respond to Jesus? And what does it say in our passage? It says, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down. They humbled themselves and they worshiped him. They worshiped a child. And then they didn't just stop there. Then they opened their gifts. It says, calls them treasures. They opened their treasures and presented him these gifts of gold and of frankincense and of myrrh. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you this morning and tell you, uh, while these were functional gifts and while they have great meaning and appointment for the baby Jesus, I want you to understand that Jesus and even God himself, these weren't the best gifts that the Magi brought. The best gifts that the Magi brought were their hearts. It was their worship. It was the fact that that when they come and they encounter the baby Jesus, that they bowed down, they took a knee, they bowed down, and in all humility, they bowed down and they worship the Son of God. I mean, isn't it amazing to consider who they are and where they came from and what they had sacrificed And when they encounter Jesus, they choose to worship. And you think, King Herod with a closed fist, you think the Magi with open hands and bent knees, worshiping the God of the universe. Worshiping the one who would be called the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the true King of the Jews, the Son of God, taking on the form of man, coming into the world. And God wants us to respond to that today. There's really two ways that we're going to ask you to respond this morning. And the first one is this, that in a few minutes we're going to play a song. And during that song, uh, we're going to have staff and elders over here. Um, We have a little room right around the corner called the Decision Room. And if you are outside of Christ this morning, if you want to accept Christ for the first time, if, if you want to, maybe you've been walking away from God, maybe you've been close-fisted toward Him, and, and you want to repent of your sins, you want to rededicate your life, maybe you just need some prayer, maybe you're just beaten down, or maybe you just have questions, that's what they're there for. They want to counsel you, they want to pray for you, they want to support you. And so we're, that's one of the ways you can respond to the message today, if you're outside of Christ or you're just needing to come back to Christ, that you can come over there during that song that we're going to sing. And the second way that we're going to respond this morning is right now through what we call Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. And hopefully if you're in the room with us this morning, you got the cup um, and the bread as you came in. And uh, if you're at home watching online with us this morning, hopefully you've made those preparations for communion. And this is what I want you to think about as we take these emblems this morning. Remembering that Jesus commands this of his disciples, his followers. And he says, as many times as you should do this, do this in remembrance of me. Remember my sacrifice. And we know that the bread represents his body and the cup represents his blood. He calls it the blood of the new covenant. Because now salvation is not through animal sacrifice or anything else that you can do. There's no merit-based salvation. Now it's only through the acceptance of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He says, I want you to take these emblems. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And when you come to take communion every week, I'm going to tell you two ways you come to communion. You come with a closed fist or you come on bended knee. And there's probably times 
For those of us that have taken communion for years because we've been followers of Jesus and Christians for years, there have been times where when we come to Jesus and we come to this time, we have come to Jesus with a closed fist. For many, many different reasons. And what God's greatest desire is, is that when you come, you come and you humble yourself and you trust and you put faith in me and you worship me. Maybe not just because of what I've done, but because of who I am as the Son of God. And so we get this special moment today to take these emblems and to remember Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that we have this opportunity and we have the freedom to do this right now. And God, as we take these emblems, I pray that we would glorify you, we would magnify you, we would worship you. God, I pray that some of us that may be tempted to come at you with a closed fist and say, I'm not going to give you all my life. I'm going to walk out the doors today. I'm going to keep living my life just as I've been living it, even though I know it doesn't honor you. I know you're not the main thing. You're not the object of my worship. God, I have so many distractions in this world and so many other worldly pursuits that are someday all going to end and all going to fade away. Lord, I pray, open us up. Open our hearts that we can, that we can humble ourselves, that we can go to bended knee, that we can bow down, that we can worship you. And that through taking these emblems, Lord, you would draw us in. You are the bread of life. You are the living water. God, that when we take this communion, we are just drawn into your presence, that our response would be like the Magi. That we would choose to humble ourselves and to worship. So God, I pray as we do this together in these next few minutes, God, that you just continue to speak into our hearts and into our minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.